Welcome to River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we strive to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson continues his series titled Elevate with part two, God is Not. A pot of plant serves as a good visual of what God is not. Knowing what God is not gives great reason to elevate God. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. We have, um, we're in, the, in a series entitled Elevate, and currently we're talking about elevating God because that's the foundational point, and I want to continue that thought um, a little bit today, but last week we were encouraged by Psalm 34 that said, let us exalt his name together. So the, the, the desire is that personally and privately as well as corporately, that all together we're going to elevate the Lord together. And we looked at that, uh, making that able to do that in three ways. One is to recognize God for who he is. In other words, we, we don't elevate God and put him where he belongs. He's already where he belongs. We just recognize God where he belongs. And then we rank God number one because of who he is we're going to make him the number one priority in our life. And then thirdly, we do that by representing God to the world. We want the world to know and see God the same way we do, high and elevated and highly exalted. So I want to carry that theme, but I'm going to come from a different perspective this morning. And it's going to be here from Exodus chapter 3. Now, Exodus 3 is uh, the story of the burning bush, where God is in the burning bush and he's talking to Moses and God's going to call Moses out to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so when they start this conversation, Moses has some um, uh, reservations. He has some, some questions that he begins to ask. So there's a dialogue taking place here in Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in the middle of that dialogue in verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This name that many of us know well, I am, I am who I am. In the Hebrew, um, God's self-designation here by this name has no time constraints, no time connotation whatsoever. So I am who I am could also mean I am who I was. I am who I will be. I will be who I was. I will be who I will be. I will be who I cause to be. It, it has this huge connotation. In fact, one theologian says the name and nature of God presented here in this name is so full of meaning that no human expression can ever sum it up. In other words, there's no way for finite human words to describe the infinite nature of God. It is so massive. That's what this name, I am, encompasses and incorporates. Now, typically, when I've heard messages about God or even talked about God, it's usually from the perspective of who is God or what is God? What can God do? I want to come from the other side this morning and talk about what God is not. Because I think when we consider what God is not, 
It causes us to elevate God even higher. And this name I am, because of the nature of the name, it reveals several things that God is not. So that's what we're going to look at. And to help you visualize this as we walk through the process, we're going to use this potted plant as the illustration. Because this potted plant will represent very well what God is not. And hopefully, down the road from now on, when you see a potted plant, you're going to say, hey, God is not, and it might help you even elevate God in that moment. So there's four aspects I want to share with you this morning of what God is not. Number one, God is not defilable. God is not defileable. He cannot be defiled. He cannot be contaminated. This potted plant, as you can tell, it's beautiful. It's strong, it's healthy, it looks great. But it is susceptible to disease, to some type of infection. And that disease can come in this plant and it can contaminate it, it can defile it, it can ruin it. But I am, the nature of that name, means that God is not defilable because it means he's set apart. He's, he's withdrawn, he's different from everything else and everyone else. He could actually say, I am, you're not. Because that's the connotation. I am, and I'm totally different and separate from anything and everything else. Exodus 15, 11 says it very well. It says, who among the gods is like you? Who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Now these phrases, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, together actually mean uniquely pure, God is uniquely pure. We, I ate at some restaurant the other day and it said, I forgot exactly what it said, but it was 99.99% free of something. <laughs> but I thought, well, it's got 0.1%. God is uniquely pure, unable to be contaminated whatsoever because actually what happens is it serves as like a, a barrier. The best word picture I can give you would be like a crime scene when they put the crime scene tape around that crime scene, the reason they put the tape there is to not allow anything in there that would contaminate the crime scene. That's the picture of this phrase, majestic in holiness and awesome in glory. It's as if um, the, the power and the majesty and glory of God is so great, it acts like a barrier, it acts like a wall that doesn't allow anything inside to contaminate God. He is holy. He is set apart. So he's beyond any contamination. Habakkuk 1.13 says God's eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. James 1.13 says God cannot be tempted by evil. So what it tells us is because of his majesty and glory, it is so great, it is so powerful that it will not allow anything into God, into the nature and essence of God that would defile it or contaminate it. He is not, uh, not defilable. Here's a second one. God is not destructible. Again, we see the potted plant. It's beautiful. It's strong. I know somebody's going to get mad at me right here, but I can very easily just start to tear up this potted plant. I can just rip it apart. I can, I can do whatever I want to with it. I could take it down and just stomp on it. Why? Because I'm a lot stronger than the potted plant. It is destructible. Even though it's strong and healthy now, some forces can come and destroy it. By the nature of God's name, I am, he is not destructible. Because what that means is I always will be. 
There's never a time when I will cease to exist because I am. Revelation 22:13 says it this way. I'm the alpha and omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Another, in other words, what it's saying is there's not anything after me. I'm the end. There's no way that I'm going to cease to exist and there'll be anything else exist after that because I'm the end and I'm the omega. So by, by nature, what he's saying is I am indestructible. I cannot be destructed or destroyed. Here's a third one. God is not dependent. God's not dependent on the potted plant. The only way that this is going to stay as healthy and pretty and strong as it is is is, is a dependence upon some external resources. I'm going to have to water it. I'm going to have to put it in sunlight. I'm going to have to be sure it doesn't get too much sunlight so it doesn't burn up. I've got to give it some shade. If it's in the wind like today, I've got to pull it out or it's going to be in Lubbock by tomorrow. <laughs> it's dependent upon external resources. But God, inherent in the name, I am means he's not dependent. He exists in and of himself. He exists without the aid of anything or anyone else. He was not created. His name is not I became. His name is I am. And he's always existed. What that means is God is self-sustaining. He has no need for nourishment. He has no need for protection. He has no need for anyone or anything to generate his existence or to sustain his existence. But he's also self-sufficient. This may come as a surprise to some of us, but God does not need us. Now, I think he needs me because all the time I'm trying to tell him what I think he needs to do to take care of this situation, but he doesn't really need me. God does not need anything. In fact, Acts 17, 25 says, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. In other words, God's not dependent upon us. We are dependent upon him. God doesn't need anything. I um, heard a pastor several years ago say that, that God has two needs. He has the need to be believed and he has the need for relationship. And although I know what he was trying to communicate in his message, I have to strongly disagree with that because God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need to be believed or relationship. Now, he wants us to believe in him, but it's not because he needs it, it's because we need it. He wants relationship with us, not because he needs the relationship, but we need the relationship. He doesn't need anything. He's the one that provides us for our need. So God is not defilable, he is not destructible, and he is not dependent. Here's the fourth one. I want to spend a little more time on this one. God is not determinate. God is not determinate. That simply means having defined limits. He's not confined within limits. He's not confined within defined limits. He is he's unrestricted. In other words, he is not limited at all. This potted plant exists solely in this pot. Its entire existence is in this box and in this pot. It does not exist outside of that pot. It is restricted within the limits of that pot. But God's name, I am, is 
all-encompassing, and it is all-containing. It's uncontainable. It's unrestricted. By nature of his name, I am. It's talking about the vastness of God. Last week, we talked a little bit, uh, when we talked about the presence of God, we said that God is transcendent, and that transcendence means he is separate from and independent of and superior to us. But at the very same time, he is imminent. And his imminence means that he is present with us and active with us. But there's a third aspect of God's presence that theologians call his immensity. And all that means is he is huge. He is vast. The more common term is just his vastness. God is so vast that we cannot understand his vastness. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Job 5.9, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. Ecclesiastes 3.11, we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Isaiah 40.28, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and his understanding no one can fathom. You see the trend you see the similarity? It's this word fathom, that God is not able for us to fathom. That word means after intense research, after seeking, after, after searching diligently, I still don't understand. I still can't get it. Kind of like the way I was in some of my college classes and some of my tests. Didn't matter how long I studied, I still failed it because I just could not understand it. I couldn't comprehend it. That's the idea here. Regardless of how much time and effort we put in to trying to understand God and who he is, we'll never be able to because of his immensity, because he is so vast. Have you ever wondered how many galaxies there are? Have you ever considered how big the universe is? When you think about the universe and the stars and the planets, etc., just realize that he created every one of those. And he named every one of those. And he placed every one of those exactly where they're supposed to be. And he sustains every one of those. Knowing that, do you think that God doesn't know you? You think God doesn't know your need? Do you think God is not able to sustain you in the midst of whatever your need is? Absolutely, of course he is. But as we get back to this concept of the universe, the scientists refer to what's called the observable universe. In other words, it's just what, at this point, what we're able to actually see or record or, or film, whatever. It's the observable universe. And they say, at this point, the observable universe is 93 billion light years across. 93 billion light years. I can't even compute that. But it also contains 100 billion galaxies, just in the observable universe. In fact, most scientists are saying that will soon be 200 billion galaxies as telescope technology and space advances and we're able to actually see farther. That's going to increase to 200 billion galaxies. But just the 100 billion galaxies. Scientists also say that the observable universe is only 4%, that we can only see 4% of the universe. So 100 billion galaxies is just... 4% of what is out there. The vastness, the immensity of that. 
In that context, Psalm 8.1 says, you have set your glory above the heavens, above the cosmos, above the universe. Psalm 113, five through six says, it's a great word picture, by the way. Who is like the Lord, our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? You talk about vast. God is so vast that he has to stoop down to look at the universe. We're talking about 100 billion galaxies as 4%, add to whatever, if you would add 100%, I don't know, kazillion, quotillion, quasi, I don't know what kind of helion it is, I don't know. But we're talking about this mass amount. The word picture is, God has to stoop down to look at it. There are times when I'm at the house on the floor, we have a little kind of vinyl planking floor and there might be some kind of speck or something on the ground and I don't know what it is. Is it a bug, is it a spider, is it food, what is it? So I've gotta come and I've gotta stoop down so I can get close enough to see it because I'm so far away from it and I can't tell. I've got to stoop down to see what it is. God is so huge, he is so vast that he has to stoop down to see 500 quazillion billion galaxies. That's how vast God is. He is not determinate. He is not limited. Now that has one practical application at least. And that's that God doesn't fit in a box. It seems like we want to put God in a box. Because if we can put God in a box, we can control him a little better. We're a little bit more comfortable <laughs> with a God in a box. The older I get, the more I realize how uncontainable God is. And the older I get as I look back, I can see all the times when I tried really hard to put God in a box and how much of my life I've lived with God in a box. I've tried to put God in my theological box. That if I don't interpret it, if I don't believe it, God, it doesn't work that way. I've tried to put God in an experiential box. That if I haven't experienced it, nobody else can experience it. We sometimes want to put God in a box. But what I want to communicate this morning is God doesn't fit in a box. We need to take him out of our boxes and let God be as vast and uncontainable as he is. Hold that thought for a moment. Let's talk a little bit more about his vastness because his vastness has several applications to his character that ministers to us and helps us. Because God is not limited at all. That means, one, that he's not limited in his knowledge. He is omniscient, which simply means he has perfect knowledge of everything that is actual and potential. He knows everything that is and everything that can be. He knows everything that is before it is. He knows everything about everything. He knows everything about everyone. There's not anything he doesn't know. He is truly the ultimate know-it-all in the very best possible sense of that word. And it also means that he is inherently omniscient. In other words, he doesn't need a data system. He doesn't need an information system. He doesn't need anybody feeding him this knowledge. He has all of this knowledge in and of himself. He is omniscient. Now, on one side, 
this can be really, really scary <laughs> to realize and know that God knows everything I do. He knows everything I say. He knows everything I think. He knows all that stuff inside of us that nobody else is aware of. He knows everything about me. That can be kind of scary and intimidating. I ran across a story about a wealthy grandfather. Um, he was aging and he was going deaf. Actually, he was practically deaf. And all his family members knew he was practically deaf, so they would just talk and he was just kind of oblivious. Well, he went to the doctor finally and the doctor was able to fit him with a, a revolutionary new hearing aid that not only allowed him to hear better, but it basically almost gave him perfect hearing. So several months later, when he comes back to the doctor for a follow-up visit, the doctor just says, hey, I bet your family is so excited that you can finally hear and join in the conversations. I bet they're excited. And the grandfather said, I haven't told them yet. <laughs> he said, I just sit around in the living room while they're talking and they don't know I'm listening. He said, I've already changed my will three times. <laughs> it can be a scary thing to know, but here's the reality. The one who knows us best loves us the most. And there's not anything in us that keeps him from loving us. We should never let the fact that he knows us create fear or shame or guilt. It may cause conviction, but not shame and guilt. It should propel us, though, to practice Psalm 1914. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. But the real truth and the comfort is this, that God knows everything about you. He knows what you need. He knows where you are. He knows your situation. There's not anything that takes God by surprise that happens in your life. So you can take comfort in that he knows. But secondly, it means he's not limited in his presence. He's what we call omnipresent. That means he's everywhere all at the same time. And all of him exists everywhere at the same time. There's not a piece of him everywhere. It's all of him everywhere which means he can hear all of our prayers at the same time. Earlier in the service when we had a moment where all of you are praying, God can hear all of your prayers at the same time as if you were the only one praying. Multiply that time by all the believers in the world could pray at the same time and God's able to, to, to minister because he's very present with every one of us. I think I've shared this story before, but I'll share it again. Um, the, the first time I went home with Denise to, to meet the rest of her family and be at her house, we were still dating, I was blown away. She's got three siblings Two, two of them are sisters, one's a brother. Of course, her mom, she, and her, her dad was kind of the quiet one, but the other five, they're all as verbal as Denise. Now, that's a compliment, honey. I just want you to know that. <laughs> but they're all as verbal. And so when we went to that house, what was crazy is all five of them were talking at the same time. They're all talking about five different stories. They're saying different things. So they're saying five stories that all the same, they're all doing, and I'm just sitting back going, I have two sisters, but they're, they're both considerably older than me. Yeah, considerably. And so the latter part of my, my growing up, I was kind of an only child. And so our home was really quiet at that point. So when I went to Denise's, all five, it was unbelievable. But what was crazy to me is every one of them 
followed every single story and knew exactly what everybody was saying. And I'd talk this and that answer, and then she'd talk this and that. It was, it was wild. But it's a great picture of God because every one of us can be communicating what we need and have conversation with God. And he hears all of it. He's never confused because he's omnipresent. But third, it means he's not limited in his power. He is omnipotent. He is all powerful. There's nothing beyond his power. Creation was not beyond his power to take nothing, ex nihilo, and create something. Resurrection was not beyond his power to take what is dead and bring it to life. But what that means for us practically is he is stronger than any need that we ever have in our life. 1 John 4, 4 says, you dear children are from God and you have overcome them. As children of God, we have overcoming power. And that word overcome means to overpower. What it's saying is that God can overpower all things in our life because he has power over all things in our life. He is unlimited in his power. And I know I do this, and I think probably most of us do this. That is, we underestimate, we greatly underestimate the power of God. We underestimate the fact that his power is more than enough to help us overcome our addictions our temptations, our struggles, our fears, our problems, whatever the enemy will come against us with. Because he is all-powerful, he has more than enough power to overcome whatever comes into our life. Romans 8.37 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors. I've, I've studied that some. I still have no idea what that means. To be more than a conqueror, but it sounds cool. <laughs> I mean, this thing it sounds great. It's victorious, whatever it actually means. But here's the con- concept here. All three of these are necessary and important. God must be all of these because if he's not all of these, it doesn't help us at all. If God's omniscient, but he's not omnipotent, That means he may know our need, but he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. If he's omnipotent, but he's not omniscient, he may have the power to do what we need, but he doesn't know what we need. (laughs) If he's omniscient and omnipotent, but he's not omnipresent, he may know what our need is. He may have the power to meet our need, but we've got to get in line because he's helping 7 billion other people. (laughs) He may never get to us. So he's all of these things that add to his vastness. But there's one other thing he's not limited in. He's not limited in his riches. Flip over, if you will, to Ephesians. I'm going to end with this concept. In Ephesians, Paul several times talks about the riches of God and how unlimited his riches are. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Lavish just means he kept pouring it and pouring it and pouring it and pouring it and pouring it. It's unlimited resource. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter two, verse six. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Chapter three, verse eight. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me, why? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. What we see here is a description of the riches of God. They are unsearchable. They are incomparable. They are glorious. God is rich. These riches include everything that God is and everything that God has. His riches include his kindness and his tolerance, his patience, his grace, his forgiveness, his love, his power, his blessing, his freedom. All of these are unlimited. Here's the point that I want to instill this morning. Don't limit God. Don't put God in a box. God is not a potted plant. And he can't fit in any of our boxes. Don't limit his power in your life. Don't limit his wisdom and knowledge that he knows what you need and he knows what is best for you. Don't limit his grace by determining that you've done something that is beyond his grace. Don't limit his forgiveness that for some reason you've done something and you can no longer receive the forgiveness of God. Don't limit the love of God in you and for you. Don't limit the patience of God and that he is so long-suffering toward us. And don't limit what God can do with you and through you. Don't limit your usefulness and potential. Don't ever say, I can't, because in Christ I can do all things. May we not limit God. May we not put him in our box. Let God be big. Individually, let him be big in your life. My prayer is that corporately, as River Fellowship, we will let God be big in this place. And as Moses learned, God is the great I am. And for you, may he be the great I am. Would you bow with me? Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.